Hi there and welcome to another Osler podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Interstitial lung disease is like a black box for many intensivists. The complexity of the pathology seems only to be matched by the complexity of the diagnostic classification and some of the drug names used to treat them. James Lindstrom is a dual-trained intensivist and respiratory physician in Geelong, Australia, and he joins me to explore some of the issues related to ILD in the ICU. James, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Tom. James, I guess there's two common presentations for uh, interstitial lung disease in ICUs. There's those who are known to have ILD and present to an ICU, and then there's those who are unknown at the start of their presentation. If we can start with the first group, what do patients who have got known and established interstitial lung disease present to ICU with? Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. I guess it's less what they present with and what are they referred with. Uh, that's the relevant thing because I think as intensivists, we have a, a great deal of onus upon us at that point to have discussions about what the trajectory is for the patient sitting in front of us. Uh, I think it's really worth us all reflecting uh, that we have this very heterogeneous group of diagnoses uh, which make up this basket called interstitial lung disease. And because of that, some of these are reversible, some are or to varying degrees, and, and some are irreversible. And factoring that into what the patient in front of us has going on is, is really important. You'll see these patients often come to us, I guess, in the setting, something that's completely unrelated to their lung disease. They've had a surgery, a laparotomy, something like that, which has gotten them through the door, so to speak. And then we're managing a patient that has a lot less reserve uh, than a patient without such a diagnosis underneath things. And I think that's what that's one group. And it's important to, to fracture that off slightly to patients that are presenting with an exacerbation of their interstitial lung disease, whether it be infective or non-infective versus a, a patient presenting with what for all intents and purposes looks like AIDS. So in my mind, we've, we've got the, the three groups there. So if we're faced with this sort of conundrum where a patient who's got known interstitial lung disease is referred to an ICU, I think it's fair to say that many of us would take a fairly pessimistic view of that referral. How do we go about making, or do you have any tips for going about making uh, an assessment of the value that they're likely to get from an ICU admission? Great question. I think um, if we, uh, again, reflect on that heterogeneity sorry, of, of the diagnoses, uh, that will give us one clue. So if we have a patient that's um, presenting in front of us with, let's say, an organising pneumonia, uh, which may be in the setting of a, an antecedent event uh, or not, then that patient has a great deal of potential for recovery. And this diagnosis is often very difficult to make, even if you've known the patient for quite a long time, rather than uh, just seeing them in the middle of a met call or an emergency department review. So trying to get any information that may be around uh, that, especially if they've seen a physician previously, is really important. It will give you a whole heads up, head start and it will save you hours and hours of digging. I think some of the things that are also useful is trying to tra track that patient's trajectory of disease. If they've had known interstitial lung disease for the last couple of years and they're getting progressively worse and they've deteriorated and they ended up on home oxygen, the likelihood of that patient turning around and coming out of hospital with a better outcome than they had when they walked in is exceptionally low. Um, if, if, and I mean a better outcome than they had pre-morbidly before their acute illness. And so 
we need to be quite frank with our patients. This is where you are. Everything has to go right for you to get back to that. Um, and if something goes wrong, then you may end up being in a worst case scenario than, than you started. And is that acceptable for you? These patients, they've had often the more established ones quite a long time to, to deal with their disease. Often when we're seeing them in outpatients, uh, they've had a while to get to the point of diagnosis and then they're chronically breathless or have chronic other symptoms. We can introduce other medication, which we can talk about. Um, and then as, as they devolve, we introduce them to the concepts of palliative care and home oxygen. I think home oxygen is, is a really uh, significant flag for these patients, um, even uh, as we would use it for COPD as a flag for how well patients are coping in the community. It really demonstrates to us a lack of reserve uh, for that person. So really looking at the patient's underlying functional status prior to any of this is much more helpful, I think, than looking at their DLCO or their FEV1. Those things can give us a clue. Uh, but I think they're more useful if we're looking at taking a patient to surgery rather than somebody has an acute viral exacerbation and they're walking in front of us. James, a bit like oncology, there's a, a large number of unfamiliar drugs uh, that has come in with a respiratory patient. What are the sorts of things that uh, intensivists need to know about some of these background community therapies um, for patients who are admitted, for example, after a post-operative course where they may not be eating adequately and those types of issues? So these drugs are new and we don't actually have a great deal of data uh, for how these, uh, they interact during the course of your intensive care stay. The patients in general, they're not going to um, suffer dramatically being off their medication for a couple of days. We... It is worth reflecting that to get on these medicines in, in the first instance, and then the PBS criteria are actually changing, um, but uh, you have to have met certain markers. So the patient can't be too unwell to get on them in the first place. So whilst they can be a marker that the disease um, is bad, they also to a degree a marker that it wasn't that bad. Um, I think bread and butter management of your intensive care patient shouldn't be too influenced by the fact that they're on uh, Perfenidone. Um, just check with your pharmacist rather than trying to remember, I guess, all the, the ins and outs of it. You're not going to see many of these patients. A lot of them self-select out. Patients that have severe interstitial lung disease are rarely candidates for major surgeries. Um, and so we don't see them all that often. James, in terms of patients who ultimately end up on a ventilator, whether that be a primary respiratory reason or because it facilitates something like an operation, are there differences in the way that we manage their ventilation strategy? Excellent question. Um, again, interstitial lung disease in intensive care is something that hasn't been studied that much. Um, the two, the overlap uh, has historically been very low because of terrible prognoses for a lot of patients with the underlying disease. What we've often seen is patients have been managed with ARDS type. Uh, ventilation, lung protective ventilation strategies. And certainly we, we don't want to over distend the lung. You may well find that uh, you, you're going to lose that compliance. It's not going to be there in, in the first instance. There's some data to suggest that higher levels of PEEP aren't associated with great outcomes for these patients. And to a large degree that departs from a lot of what we sometimes do for hypoxic patients in intensive care. And I think it's just worth being aware of that. ARDS is 
ARDS, it's a syndrome, and a patient with interstitial lung disease can have a, uh, as a pathological diagnosis, can have a syndrome that fits with um, ARDS, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily ventilate them the same. So we probably want to be wary uh, of of overventilating, of giving too high peak pressures uh, to these patients. Of course, often if we're getting to the point of having discuss, to discuss that in a patient with severe underlying lung disease, we're also getting to the point of having other discussions as well. But probably don't escalate the peak quite as quickly as, as you might uh, in a de novo ARDS or a pancreatitis related lung uh, insult, for example. Switching tact now, James, to the patient who presents with an acute illness that ultimately ends up being um, interstitial lung disease. How do these patients tend to present and how can you differentiate them from other causes of severe respiratory failure, such as ARDS? Well, the, the truth is for many patients that come through the door, we just don't know. So a patient will present, they'll have severe often hypoxic rather than hypercapnic respiratory failure. But then x-ray, it may show diffuse bilateral infiltrates. We don't think they have heart failure, they deteriorate. And then they may get intubated, they may not. And this is where it gets tricky. We start looking for the common causes of patients that, uh, or patients to present with hypoxic respiratory failure. And often it's more of a process of elimination rather than anything else. It can be really helpful for us to get a, a high resolution CT for these patients, but often they're too sick to get downstairs. And especially they're often too sick to get what we call the full high-res CT protocol. So um, prone and supine views and inspiratory and expiratory views. You can imagine that a lot of the patients by the time they hit the unit aren't really looking forward to going downstairs and rolling on their face and holding their breath. But if we can get that before these patients deteriorate, it can really help guide the diagnosis. X-rays on their own can be very difficult to determine. So we look for evidence of infection in the blood work, inflammation. We also look for other clues. We take a history and that history has really got to focus on what exposures this patient may have. And this, for example, may be, where do you work? What do you do exactly with your work? Often we need to make sure we take these histories upfront as early as we can. Perhaps don't wait for the respiratory team to get there because the patient may deteriorate to the point where they're not able to give us a good solid history by the time that happens. So for example, the other day I had a patient that I was consulting on and we'd heard that he'd come in, he'd had a little bit of a lung insult, maybe, I don't know, he wasn't sure, a bit of shortness of breath a couple of months ago, got some steroids, maybe didn't, the history is a bit vague, but then you go digging. What do you do for work? Oh, I'm a farmer. Okay. But what do you what do you farm? Oh, I have dairy cattle, perhaps. You know, oh, what else? Okay, but we also have grains. Okay, so when you grow grains, do you grow them? Do you put them in the silo yourself? Do you have it? And then you start to really get a lot more information about what exposures this person's had that they might not proffer straight up. Asking about you know, molds and fungus and other exposures can certainly be important for a differential point of view. And also asking for signs of other inflammatory or um, rheumatological type syndromes. Do you get sore joints in the morning? Have you had any rashes that are unexplained? Uh, things like this can really lead us down a path. Because if we end up finding that this patient has 
rheumatoid arthritis that hasn't been diagnosed. That's going to give us a completely different, uh, I guess, management chain to a new diagnosis of idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. So asking those questions, really good textbook history up front is so important. Um, so then often these patients, they'll get empirically treated for, for infection, and that's not an unreasonable thing to do. They, they can be very sick. So they'll get broad spectrum antibiotics that they typically cover. We'll send off a bunch of tests. It's often quite interesting to, to look at the CRP here. Um, you can use procalcitonin if you have access to it uh, to see, does this patient have an infection driving things? I find in this day and age, it's also really helpful to get an echocardiogram pretty early up front uh, because we want to know what the left heart's doing. Can it be contributing to this picture? But also what the right heart's doing. If we get an echo and all of a sudden we see, oh, gee, we've got a very thick-walled RV uh, and we think um, in the setting of some pulmonary hypertension, we start to wonder maybe this disease was there a fair bit longer than we've been led to believe. The panel of rheumatological tests that we order isn't as broad as some of our colleagues, I guess, and it's probably best just to, to touch base as to what really we do need to order and what we don't, and being reflective that in some of our institutions, we'll get a great turnaround time uh, of a day or two, so we might not need to order these tests too early. In some institutions, uh, you might have to send your blood tests off by carrier pigeon to the nearest capital city, and they might take wait a week to come back. So in that setting, I might order them a little bit earlier, hoping that the patient will get better and you know, we've wasted a a few blood tests, but we may buy ourselves days of diagnostic dilemma further down the track. Then looking for that response. It's really nice to not blow patients with steroids up front if we think that they might have an infection or a viral disease. Now, of course, I'm putting aside patients with coincident um, COPD, for example, or, or patients that are really an extremist. But if we see a patient turn around with antibiotic treatment without steroids, that really helps us with our diagnosis. Coming back to the patient, for example, that I had uh, mentioned earlier, so this man's a farmer. If I went on to say, hey, you have hypersensitivity pneumonitis, I think, I'm not sure, um, because you're too unwell to put a bronchoscopy, you know, do a bronchoscopy at the moment, uh, and you're not intubated, then I'm, I might actually impact his life forever, even if he gets better and goes home. If I turn around and say, oh, also you can't work or live where you lived. Um, and so having that clue, we held off on, on giving this man steroids and he got better without them. And that really gives us uh, a lot of diagnostic information down the track that's gonna have um, consequences. So I think a, a systematic approach often will lead us to make a diagnosis of interstitial lung syndromes and it's going to take time. And some of that diagnostic approach is seeing how patients respond to treatment for standard uh, therapy. James, um, the classification for interstitial lung diseases seems to change as soon as you remember the last one. What are the common sorts of interstitial lung diseases that the average garden variety intensivist might come across? Which ones have a more favourable diagnosis and which ones should you be more circumspect about? So you're absolutely right. The classification of interstitial lung disease uh, is enormous and seems to change as we get more information. Um, 
there was an update, I think last in about 2018 around this. I think there's a few good ways to break this down in your mind. First up though, uh, trainees, you don't need to know all of the types of interstitial lung disease. It is not going to help you uh, manage your patient. It's really helpful to, to have some broad strokes uh, in, though that, that you can look at. A few ways of categorizing this, for example, might be looking at the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias versus the other diseases that are going on. So the idiopathic interstitial pneumonias, as the, the name suggests, are when we don't know what's caused this. And I guess this uh, is most famous for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. Um, there's also this term you might hear thrown around called NSIP or non-specific interstitial pneumonia. And that can be idiopathic. It can also be part of other syndromes as well. So be wary when you hear that. There's smoking-related um, lung diseases that fall under that IIP category and a few other rare things um, along with a bunch of unclassifiable ones. And then there's um, a group of autoimmune-associated interstitial lung diseases. And these are uh, sometimes referred to, not entirely interchangeably, as uh, CTD or connective tissue disease-related interstitial lung diseases. Um, and these may well be more responsive to immunosuppression, depending on the underlying diagnosis. And then there's things that you may or may not see that often, um, such as sarcoidosis, which may be almost completely uh, remediable with treatment. Often we don't give any treatment at all and we just have you know, expectant management of these patients. But you may see uh, patients with those on the ward and their, their, their imaging can look quite, um, quite disheartening at times. Uh, so it's important that we, the, we are aware that there are different diagnoses, uh, but we don't need to remember every single subset of everything. So in my mind, there's the idiopathic and the autoimmune, and then there's the other kind of reactive things, um, hypersensitive and humanizing and so like that. That's one classification. The other thing, the other kind of classification I think is really helpful is things that are reversible and things that aren't. And um, idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis is not a reversible condition. The things that we can do is slow it down, but short of lung transplant, the patient is not going to get better. It's unfortunate, but it's it's the truth in the world that we live at the moment. Certainly, um, fibrosing forms of NSIP can, can react like that as well. The others in that large group I referred to with a lot of the inflammatory conditions, often they can be reversible to varying degrees. And certainly organizing pneumonia um, can can look quite spe spectacularly melt away uh, with steroids. Um, and so that, that's one time where we might want to give it. We can get clues from looking at the CT. Um, I think it's, it's helpful if you're you know, the, the intensivist on seeing a patient, you don't, have, uh, you don't have that capacity to have a long MDM and a full discussion. And to be honest, a lot of these diagnoses these days are made in a multidisciplinary meeting because they're too hard for um, one individual to make uh, as a, a specialist often in ILD, let alone a specialist in some other field. Uh, but if you see a lot of scarring, a lot of fibrosis on a, C, on a CT, that's bad. If we see a lot of smudging, what we call ground glass opacities, that's possibly less bad. There's a lot of differentials that fit in those, uh, fit in there, but more scarring, more bad. I think that's a, that's a good takeaway message. 
Um, the last of the really hyper-acute uh, versions of interstitial lung disease, and this is one that we do see in intensive care, and it's really difficult, um, uh, such as um, acute interstitial pneumonia. Uh, you may have heard of the term Hammond-Rich syndrome. And this is basically an abrupt onset inflammatory lung disease. And these patients get very sick and a lot of them, unfortunately, uh, do pass away despite everything that we can possibly do. And again, they end up largely being a diagnosis of exclusion here uh, because these patients are rarely well enough to have an open lung biopsy. Uh, and even the biopsy can often be inconclusive anyway. So we push on and um, that, that subgroup, I think are really important for the intensivist uh, to think about because they, some, you know, these patients will often have fevers, right? And they'll often, um, you know, present with this, this biomatrial trait and we'll go, oh, it's infection and all the treatment for infection and they don't get better. And uh, if we don't think outside that, that box, um, then we may miss the diagnosis that's treated quite radically differently. James, um, two of the areas that often make it difficult for intensivists in managing these patients is working out the timing of tests like uh, a bronchoscopy and bronchoalveolar lavage, and similarly open lung biopsy. What are the um, what's the value of these tests, and where do you see them fitting? Because often it, it influences things like timing of intubation and ventilation as a, a practical issue in their management. I think this question actually often starts a long time before the patient's even flagged uh, to the intensive care, which uh, is a little bit of a pity. Um, the diagnostic yield of you know, bronchoscopy and an open lung biopsy is variable, and it doesn't always completely inform what we are going to do for the patient in front of us, although it certainly can give us clues and a, and a negative test can be very helpful as well. Especially with some of the PCRs we're getting looking for, for example, PJP, which could often be a, a differential for a bilateral lung infiltrate uh, with a hypoxic patient that's not getting better with standard antibiotic management. I guess to look at these patients on the ward, I've very spoken as to ordering the serology and the blood tests and getting them off early if we think that's what's going on. The question as to bronchoscopy is a difficult one. These patients. Uh, a good portion of them, if they do um, need a bronch, uh, end up getting intubated for that bronchoscopy. And um, a high number of those patients don't end up getting extubated at the end of the case. And they may end up being introduced to the intensive care through that route. And often that bronchoscopy won't tell us an awful lot. So um, the, the support for those patients varies from hospital to hospital. Often the familiarity of the anaesthetist in, in working um, in this scenario with an acutely hypoxic patient is a, a game changer. Um, some patients and some anaesthetists are very happy to run with Thrive um, with uh, so high flow oxygen, um, uh, intravenous um, sedation for quite hypoxic patients and other anaesthetists prefer to think, do things differently. Um, and that may trigger um, well, that may, and I, I have no, no evidence that I'm aware of to back this up, but you know, one would think if the patient gets intubated, um, it, it's more likely they're going to stay intubated uh, rather than 
if they weren't intubated in the first time, uh, first place, and see whether they actually need that support. Um, there, there have been retrospective studies that have looked at uh, the use of bronchoscopy um, with acute respiratory failure. Uh, those often with established interstitial lung disease or not often to try to tell uh, do they have an infective syndrome going on or is it an inflammatory or non-infective exacerbation of, of this disease. Um, and the, the numbers really stack up. So I think the, there was a 2017 um, uh, paper in uh, respirology, sorry, that um, uh, found that of the, the patients um, that were intubated, sorry, that were taken for bronchoscopy, um, about a quarter of the, the procedures that were done on the general ward were accompanied by a, a transfer to intensive care afterwards. And over half of those intubated um, that were started in the ICU to facilitate the procedure were not extubated at the end of it. So really you're often buying not just a quick bronch, but you're buying then sedation and eventually the patient that you can no longer get a history from. So in my shop, I'm not sure what you do. I'd be very keen to hear um, another perspective. Uh, we often won't bronch these patients until they get intubated. But the moment they get intubated, I'm very keen to get down there and, um, and do a BAL uh, and a proper occlusive BAL as soon as we can. And I think that's also worth uh, flagging. If we are going to do um, a bronchioalveolar lavage, it, it's really important to have a, a technique for that that allows um, assessment of the cells that are in the alveoli, not whatever gunk that we've managed to wash up from the endobronchial tree, um, because that really doesn't tell us anything. Uh, if we do a cell count on that versus if we get a good quality BAL with a, a high return rate, we should document, you know, are we getting, are we putting 60 mils in and getting 30 mils out or are we putting 60 mils in and getting two mils out? It really does inform how, how useful that test is. I am, um, in regards to surgical lung biopsy, I have to be honest with you, I've never seen it done. Uh, I think it used to, um, they've done a little bit more than, than it is these days. Um, and uh, some overseas centers may do that. There's pretty interesting results from some studies looking at patients with uh, really respiratory failure that's undifferentiated um, and looking into just surgical lung biopsy give us an answer there. Uh, and a great deal of time, it ends up telling us that the patient has diffuse alveolar damage or, um, or something else that doesn't really inform our, our diagnosis all that much compared to what we probably knew beforehand. Sometimes it does show something that we didn't quite expect, um, but that's uncommon. Uh, and things such as previously undiagnosed infections, um, viral pneumonias uh, do pop up from time to time. Um, CMV uh, has been shown in some of the, the meta-analyses to, to turn up. I have to admit, I haven't gone uh, right through all the raw data. CMV is one of those um, viruses that turns up and then we just don't know whether it's pathogenic or not. Uh, and I, I think that's, that's pretty tricky. Um, but I, I, in my practice, very, very rarely refer a patient for open lung biopsy. And I think it's something that we should think about and we should actively make a decision whether to do or not. Um, and it should be done as a multidisciplinary discussion between intensive care and respiratory and your thoracic surgical colleagues if, if they're um, around. Uh, but certainly we also need to be aware of the potential 
complications as well, um, which uh, is not only air leak, which is probably the, the most common persistent air leak after you've gone and taken out a slice of lung from somebody with damaged lungs, uh, but also everything else that goes along with transporting somebody out of the unit. Interestingly, I have heard of um, open lung biopsies happening in the unit. I can't imagine that would happen very often um, in Australian intensive cans, but maybe uh, we do things differently um, in other shops. James, finally, you did mention there are complications of therapies, and one of those uh, that comes to mind is the complications associated with empiric steroid therapy. When should we be using steroids for an unknown diagnosis in a patient who is presumed to have interstitial lung disease? Thanks, Todd. Um, I think what you added right at the end there was um, the key. So for a patient that has presumed interstitial lung disease, making that diagnosis is often the hardest part um, because generally we don't know. So to give kind of a really broad based stroke you have a patient with diffuse bilateral lung infiltrate, hypoxia, no clear other cause. Often we'll treat this patient as an AIDS patient or we'll go looking for a cause. Um, we'll get the echoes, we'll give them antibiotics, we'll see what happens over the first week. We'll run them as dry as the kidneys will allow and we'll see if their gas exchange improves. And if it doesn't, or if things are getting worse, it's at that stage that we'll often end up discussing, hey, is this you know, AIP or another interstitial lung disease diagnosis. And at that point, we often have um, a difficult decision to make. There is some data that suggests actually that patients with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis and exacerbations, and this is not necessarily intensive care data, um, do worse if we just give them steroids. Now that, that's retrospective case uh, study, you know, case series. Um, so we certainly don't want to just go dolling out steroids all the time. But if we have a patient that really we're up against the wall and we think that the, the differential here is um, Hammond-Rich syndrome or organizing pneumonia, um, then that may well be the, the point to start steroids. But I don't think that we should be doing it uh, as an independent thing. I really think that this warrants, even I as a, um, you know, as a respiratory physician would like to have it a second person in that discussion. Um, uh, so you know, call, a, call a, another respiratory physician uh, um, to have that discussion. Do you think we're doing the right thing or are we going to be severely immunosuppressing a patient that we just haven't actually diagnosed their PJP for? Uh, because often we're talking about a gram of methylprednisolone each day for three days and then a prolonged steroid tail after this. We're rarely talking about giving somebody you know, 20 or 30 milligrams of, of um, on the flip side, though, on the flip side, there is some data um, coming through now about the empiric use of uh, steroids in ARDS. And again, all the other differentials for ARDS are still on the table sometimes. We haven't been able to exclude them all. Um, so uh, there was a Spanish trial published in The Lancet um, last year, I believe, of uh, about 270. Um, patients um, in, in Spain, uh, and they looked at patients with uh, ARDS um, and randomised them to either receive high dose, what they called, um, well, basically randomised them to receive dexamethasone or not. So um, we're talking about 
20 milligrams a day of dexamethasone for five days. And that, that's, a, that's a big dose of steroids. It's not a gram of methylprednisolone, but it's a big dose of steroids. Um, now, this study wasn't blinded or stopped early for low enrollment and had its uh, share of issues, but the study actually showed a mortality benefit uh, to giving dexamethasone. So I think it's certainly something that we should be cautious of, but not frightened uh, necessarily of doing, as long as we feel justified in ourselves that we're not going to make something else worse, undiagnosed severe heart failure um, or, or um, uncontrolled infection would be the big two. James, thanks very much for joining us and helping us to understand this very complex area sometimes. Well, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me today. And um, I uh, wish you all the best in trying to sort these patients out in our intensive care. Hopefully um, the differential of uh, COVID-19 doesn't continue to be such a high one on our, um, on our list as we move forwards into the years to come. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get access to all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps, or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.